Welcome to the City Point Church podcast. Thanks for joining us. Every day is an opportunity to take hold of. So we hope this message inspires you and builds your faith, that it helps you have more of a God perspective for your day. Enjoy. I get to speak today from the book of Daniel, and I love Daniel. If you've never opened the book of Daniel, I'd encourage you this month to open it up. It is 12 short chapters. It is jam-packed of Revelation. There are so many stories in it that you get lost in that this is just one man's lifetime. There are so many amazing things. And even last week, uh, there were a number of us missing in a way for we were enjoying the sea last week. And Rach and I were sharing a room and we're both reading Daniel and discussing just how many things can be found to shape our lives in this book that neither of us could land on a preaching topic, and I've got to do two in this uh, this uh, series. So um, I have, however, landed on something because I did see, although there are so many things in this book, if you've never, is there anybody, I'd love to just have a little show of hands, who has not got any idea about Daniel in the Bible, have never really read his story, you might have heard about a lion's den, yep, I'm seeing a few hands. So this, this guy, I want to do a really quick overview and then I'll jump into what I noticed that's unique about his life. There are many amazing revelations, but I want to bring out something that is unique in the Word of God about this man. So really brief overview. This, this young man was brought into captivity out of Judah when he was about, the Bible estimates, around 15 years old. So as a teenager who's been being equipped in a godly nation under a godly king... He has gone straight from youth camp into captivity. Now, the reason I know he was at youth camp is because the king of Babylon, which is where he's taken, only took the educated, the smart, the wise, and the good-looking. All of those people are found at youth camp. If you've ever been to youth camp, that's exactly how it feels. And at 42, I feel out of it now at youth camp. I can't jump that long. I don't look that good in the morning eating my breakfast. Like, it's an amazing experience. But this young man, along with all of those in his nation who fit that category, those who were educated, those who were wise, those who were strong, those who were good looking, they were brought into, the Bible says, leaving just the weak and the simple. That's what the Bible says leaving them in Judah. Everybody else is brought to Babylon. And in that time, Babylon is the leading nation in the world. It is the most powerful in the world. Babylon couldn't be more different to where Daniel has been raised thus far. Babylon is what we believe looks most like today's world. It is countercultural to the way God is asking us to live. It is like the Bible describes where all that seems right is wrong and all that, see, all that is wrong seems right. This is Babylon. And so Daniel and so many others are brought into captivity around the age of 15 and they are forced to stay there, forced to study They are basically forced to go to university and study the ways of Babylon so that they are highly educated in the way to live well at Babylon. So many are brought in. And so Daniel is forced to undergo this study, forced to then serve as a wise man or counsel to the wicked king of the nation at that time. He is the reason, and this will come out over the next month, that some of the other key figures brought out in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and depending on what generation you were born in, Abednego or Abednego. (laughs) 90s children say Abednego because it was in VeggieTales. So... He is the reason they're made regional overseers because of his level of authority in the nation, all right? Uh, His gifting, so his God-given giftings are that he has the ability to interpret dreams. 
Now, he has another gifting, but this features later. Because the truth is, is God with our giftings does take our giftings through character testings. And so as these character testings happen, we have physical manifestations of our our giftings, and then we have spiritual manifestations. And so Daniel in this book goes from being able to interpret dreams to being a prophet and and being gifted visions of not just the 400 years of what his people will then endure to the coming of Christ, but words that are still ones we are waiting to see come to pass today on the second coming of Christ. So this is, Dan- this is who Daniel is. There are some huge stories within it, stories of three young men refusing to bow before a false god. There is a massive story of... Uh, of which is probably one of the ones that you've heard of, even if you've never actually sat down and read the book of Daniel, if you grew up in the house of God, you would have done in Sunday school the story of Daniel being thrown into a lion's den and God saving him and the king marveling and there are many, many things. Great ways to, or great reasons to go and have a little look at this book. But... I noticed something in Daniel's story that I couldn't find anywhere else in the Word of God, and I truly believe that there is nothing in this world, while we are earthside and not heavenside, I believe there is nothing that can't be found in the Word of God. Nothing. There is nothing we face, nothing that, no challenge that hasn't been answered in the Word of God. It doesn't matter how new things are. It doesn't matter what comes along, whether it's new to you or fairly new to our world. It can, or the answers for it, the guidance and the wisdom for it can be found in the Word of God. And so as I was reading Daniel, I noticed something unique about his life that I couldn't find in other books of the Bible. And it was that Daniel actually in his lifetime serves multiple authorities. I know it seems weird. He serves in his lifetime in Judah. He served a godly king. So much so, he was pulled as one of these people who was educated and wise And then Daniel goes on to serve three wicked kings, three godless governments. Oh. He goes on with his whole life to be in a world that is countercultural to what God wants from his life, and yet. God manifests himself through this man because of something. This is the anomaly I found around Daniel. And do you know, a number of years ago, it was quite a few years ago now, a president came into the United States, he came into power, and within the first couple of months of him coming into power, I noticed that my two young sons were beginning to have fun with or mock or repeat the common or the trending memes of the day. This particular president was Donald Trump. They had a special name for him. One of my sons started to collect funny memorabilia around this particular president. And I remember at the time, this was a really normal thing. He had just come into authority over that nation. And I remember saying to Gray, something in my spirit is reacting to the way that this world is reacting to this decision. But the truth is, this is a really unusual thing to speak about in church because we're always warned never to mix religion and politics. And here I go. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is, 
is Daniel does something that is so countercultural with his life, it is countercultural to even the way most believers today react to the authority placed over them. And so I remember in my sons being quite young, I remember saying to them, we're not going to have those things in our home and we're not going to speak about this appointed leader. Our job is to pray for this leader. Regardless of whether we agree with policy or we don't, regardless of whether the largest preachers on the world have something to say about the policies or not, we're going to pray. We're going to be found praying for the leaders, regardless of what they're in. And so this morning I've titled my message, Our Response to Authority. Our response to authority, I believe it is the unique, incredible revelation that comes out through Daniel that each and every one of us has something to learn about. When I say here today a number of different authoritarian groups or people, it's going to, an eli- it's going to elicit a response here today, whether it's an audible response of the collective group or an individual response to you, you will have a first response to that. So if I cast out this morning a large one, like LNP, we're up for a referendum shortly, LNP, it's going to elicit a response, or the Labour Party. If I throw out this morning, how do you feel about the Greens? It's going to elicit a response. But then we can get even more specific. How do you feel about a specific prime minister or a specific president? Even though he's not leading our nation, where it hits the news just as high in our nation. If I cast out right now some names in history of authoritarians, people who have acquired authority or position, it's going to elicit a response. If I say here this morning, Adolf Hitler, it will elicit a response. If I ask you how you feel about the police in our area, it's going to elicit a response. If I ask you how you feel about your teachers, oh, there's the first audible. You are really quiet in politics. So everybody here believes you don't mix religion and politics, obviously. All right. If I ask you here this morning how you feel about the church leaders in this nation, how do you feel about Brian and Bobby Houston? It's going to elicit a response. If I ask you here this morning how you feel about your dad, how do you feel about your mum? It's going to elicit a response. And so I believe not one of us is immune from learning something from Daniel's life because every single one of us at every stage of life have authority set over us. And there is something beautiful to learn from Daniel's life There are a couple of key attributes I want to bring out. I'm going to bring out four this morning really quickly that we can learn from Daniel in how to respond in a godly way to the authority set over us. Number one, Daniel showed in his, just for context, 65 years of captivity in Babylon is recorded of Daniel's life under three wicked regimes. Three. And yet Daniel, one of the biggest attributes about his life in his response to authority is his humility. Daniel served his captors and wicked masters so well and loyally, loyally, gosh, that's a fun one this morning, (laughs) random, that he continued to be promoted even though the God he served was different to the gods they serve. And with every promotion, his influence in Babylon grew greater, eventually leading to both King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius to proclaim uh, Daniel's God as the only true true God. 
today, sorry, yet I'm afraid a modern day Daniel would probably be harshly criticized for the way he served these kings. Many Christians would have seen him as a spiritual compromiser and he would have been accused of aiding and abetting the enemy. Today, we are far more prone to isolate rather than infiltrate with our faith. We keep our personal contact with godless leaders, bosses, and institutions to a minimum. And when we do engage, it's more likely to be an adversarial confrontation than conducted with civil conversation. And it's no wonder that our cultural influence as, a, as Christian believers, particularly in this nation, is at an all-time low. If we want to significantly influence our modern-day Babylon, we have to change our tactics as believers. Instead of avoiding or attacking the godless leaders of this day, we need to do the same thing and respond the same way Daniel did, by humbly serving whoever God chooses to temporarily place in positions of authority. I'm going to say that again. We have to humbly serve whomever God chooses. If we honestly believe that God is sovereign, God is almighty, and that he is outside of time, then nothing that is happening in our world, no virus, no election, nothing is a surprise to our God. Nothing. And so Daniel chooses to humbly serve whom God has chosen as the temporary position of authority in his day. It's the only way that we will ever earn the right to be heard. Having a voice has to be earned. It's not a right. There is nowhere in the word of God that says, my right. The word of God says, to die to yourself. <laughs> Die to your fleshly desires. When I read that, it literally is saying, Mel, die to your offenses and your opinions and your fleshly impulses. I have called you to get on your knees and pray and serve and honor Without contact, there will never be impact. Without relationship, there will never be reform. Yet since the earliest days of the church, many well-meaning Christians have assumed that civil and friendly relationships with wicked and godless people are an implicit endorsement of their sins and values. It's a problem that the Apostle Paul had to address in one of his letters in Corinthians and I'd love to just throw the reference up for those who are taking notes this morning to go away and read this letter that Paul pens to this particular church. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. Do you know, this letter that he sent, they misunderstood his instructions in an earlier letter when he instructed them not to associate with those who are sexually immoral, greedy, dishonest in their business dealings, or who were worshipping false gods. They thought that he meant to avoid non-Christians who lived that way. So he had to write again to clarify what he meant. But do you know what? Many of us read that passage and we operate the same. And so in this particular verse, he's saying this. He says he didn't want them to cut off from non-Christians who lived like hell. In that case, they would have to leave the world. He wanted them to cut off relationship where they would be being influenced by self-proclaimed Christians who lived that way. Oh, that's a hard word and a preach for a different day. <laughs> it's massive. And so my question to you from this point would be, are we seeking to isolate from sinful people, leaders, 
organizations, or are we seeking with our lives to infiltrate their ranks to be so much of a blessing that they can't help but take notice of our faith? The second, the second attribute around Daniel's life that I noticed that he has in response to authority is that he has a submission to authority like no one else. Daniel's humble respect was tied to his firm belief that God is in control of all of those who are in control. God is in control. God will have the final say. We're not going to get to heaven one day and God lost. Pastor Rick used to say this all the time and I remember it was a wake-up call for me because I was like trying to be Jesus at this time in my life, trying to solve world peace. And I remember him saying, Mel, we're not going to get to heaven and God lost. He is sovereign and he is mighty. As we were discussing and reading this book, Rachel brought out to me that we are going to share heaven one day with King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you read the beginning of the story, it's very, very similar to Adolf Hitler. Not a little bit, a lot. <laughs> a whole nation. If you think about it, he is actually, if you read the history books from the 70s, he sounds a whole lot like Pol Pot. And yet we're probably, not we're probably, we're going to share heaven with King Nebuchadnezzar because a young man decided to honor and serve with submission and humbly come before and honor this king well, not berating him because of his beliefs, but he decided that he would serve with honor, knowing God is in control of all who are in control. It wasn't merely a theological axiom. It was the reality that he lived by. He saw Nebuchadnezzar as God's servant, a wicked king allowed to reign for a period of time in order to fulfill God's sovereign purpose. Here's the, here's the clincher in this. And in this case, in Daniel's time, Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of God. It was a discipline and a judgment of Jerusalem for the sins of the people, for Daniel's people. God was using a wicked king's regime to deal with the sins and rebellion of God's people. Daniel wasn't respectful because Nebuchadnezzar deserved it. He was respectful because God commanded it. Unfortunately, Daniel's outlooks and actions are incredibly rare today. I have heard every possible excuse as to why Daniel and Joseph, who lived, very, who lived a very similar uh, story to Daniel, why their responses to godless masters and leaders wouldn't work today. In politics, in the business world, with our police force, in our churches but none of them hold water. No matter how bad things get, the path of humble service and respect towards those God has placed in temporary stewardship and authority has always been the path that God has called you and I as believers to take. Always. Romans 13, 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you know this verse is not in reference to those who have been appointed for ministry? This is all authority. Is it any wonder that one of the commands, and one of the top commands is for us to honor our mother and our father? I think God was actually setting in motion in the youth of a child how to do this. We've got to exercise this when we are children. Otherwise, it's nearly impossible to do this as adults. We've got to begin with the first God-given authority, and that's our mum and dad. Whether they deserve it or not, whether they are a respectful person, whether they are an honorable person or not, God has commanded each and every one of us to honor 
and to serve humbly those in authority over us. Consider the words of Jeremiah. He told the Israelites who were reluctant to serve the king of Babylon that they were wrong. (laughs) He was also quite blunt. So God wanted them to humbly submit during his short season of power and authority. It's also important to realize that the path of humility doesn't always pay off immediately. Daniel lived in exile under a wicked regime for a long time. And the truth is, is he had times in his life that he had reason to believe things would change, and then they didn't. Daniel did the right thing despite being kidnapped, castrated, forced to submit to study the, uh, forced to study the occult, having his name changed to honor a demon, and then thrust into the service of wicked kings. I'm pretty sure he had no idea how his life would turn out at the end. If you'd told him, he probably wouldn't believe you. But he acted this way regardless. He didn't humbly serve his Babylonian captors because he expected a quick reward. He did it because it was the right thing to do. And it's the same for you and I today. Do you know, I was thinking about this particular point and... um, I was thinking about my daughter for she's hitting a stage where she's just about to go off to high school and walking through some milestones that I did at, you know, at her age. But uh, I remember this particular time in my life where I was in year nine in high school. High school started in my generation a year later than what it does today. So you weren't really a teenager until you were in grade eight. And so I remember in grade nine, I was walking through a season. It was not, you know, like most high school environments. You had the kids who were nice and you hung out with and the kids who weren't nice and they randomly teased you with things that you look back now and laugh at and go, I can't even believe that that was a thing. But at the time of my life in grade nine, it was mid-grade nine, I was being teased because I was the only girl in my class not shaving my legs. And that's just a random thing. But it's really obvious at the swimming carnival. So, I, I was a runner. I loved sports, so I was always in the, you know, short shorts or swimming togs, and it was obvious at that time in my life, compared to the other girls my age, that I was not shaving my legs. And I remember one of my friends said to me, why don't you just shave your legs? Because one of them had just said to me one day, why don't you shave your legs? You're like, grade nine, like, she's like, she's saying, like, you're 50 years old and not shaving your legs, you know. And I remember saying, because my mama said I'm not allowed to. And she said, well, I just do it anyway. Now, I have to be honest, I heard that statement in my high school years from most of my friends. Now, this seems like a non-consequential thing, shaving my legs. But the same comment was being made around drinking alcohol underage and smoking up at the bush place we had on the property and sneaking out at night to get up to all sorts of things, really terrible things, and riding trolleys down shopping park, you know, escalator things, and all sorts of things. So it starts with little things, but I remember saying to this particular girl in grade nine, I would never, ever do it and have my mum find out. And she was like, why? She said, because she'd kill me. The honest truth is, is my mum was not violent. She never hit me. She didn't even yell at me. I don't really have a memory of her yelling at me. My mum is a lot like me. She's a melancholy version, so she's actually quiet, to be honest. She's prophetic, so a little bit scary. (laughs) I'm really grateful that as a child, I learned a healthy fear of authority. My mum, I never legitimately feared that she'd kill me. I feared her crossing her authority. And as a mum now, I actually love to exercise a healthy fear in my parenting with my children. Not that they are afraid of me, they still run to me all the time. 
can't wait to be with me. But I love that our children have a healthy tension that if mum and dad say this, I'm not going to cross it. And when I do, I know I'm in a lot of trouble. And so it, it was the simplest story. I remember going home and having that conversation with my mum. She was like, oh, I totally forgot. I was going to let you shave at the start of high school. <laughs> a year and a half later. A year and a half later. But it did something in me. It was testing something in me. And so I'm grateful that I had to wait for a year and a half extra simply because I was still wrestling this tension of there is a healthy fear of the authority that's been placed over me that if she says no, I say okay. That if she says not yet, I trust it. Because she's got my best interest at heart and there are reasons I don't understand, but she is my God-given authority. And so I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to humbly serve and honour in the midst of it. How do we respond to godless leaders? Is it with Daniel-like honour and respect, or rather, than, or rather is it with a great deal of ridicule, ridicule, attitude, contempt, bitterness, or even refusal or hatred? This is not what God is asking for from us as believers. He's asking us to humbly serve and submit to authority. Number three, I love this about Daniel. He chose to influence. He chose to influence. Daniel and his friends never treated their captors as enemies. They followed the advice of Jesus long before it was given. They loved their enemies and did good for them. We're supposed to do the same thing today. Our great assignment is to go out into all the world and to recruit Jesus' followers, teaching them to obey everything he has taught us. Jesus never told us to go and create a Christian nation or impose our standards on non-believers or preserve a specific or particular culture. He told us to win over the lost. Those who trade the influence paradigm for a warfare paradigm often forget the awful cesspool that the New Testament church was birthed into. The Roman Empire knew nothing of political freedoms. There was no family values. Sexual perversion was norm. Life was very cheap. Justice was only available for the rich and powerful. And even though Rome tolerated most foreign religions, it did not tolerate Christians. The early church suffered fierce persecution. All but one of the apostles died a martyr's death. Yet the focus of the New Testament is entirely upon changing hearts, not governance, not governments, not culture. When the biblical authors speak of spiritual warfare, it's always framed in the context of our personal spirituality. The warfare model focuses on the wrong enemy. Non-Christians are not our enemy. They are the victims of the enemy. Victims need to be rescued, not wiped out. The Apostle Paul spelled out a response we're supposed to have in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, and it's on the screen if you'd love to follow along or in your Bibles this morning. And the, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The goal of our interactions is not to see God pour out his judgment upon them. It's to see him pour out his grace and his mercy, granting repentance and the knowledge of truth to each and every one of them. In other words, our primary goal, like Daniel's, is to influence in our modern-day Babylon. Frankly, it's here so many of us can miss the boat. The more Babylonian-like our culture becomes, 
the more our resentment to the world builds, resulting in bitterness, slander, rumor-mongering, and harsh critics that no one would categorize on this planet and definitely wouldn't funnel through the word of God as a gentle rebuke. You know, iron sharpens iron is meant for us as believers with each other, not with us to the world. We are not called to look at it and judge it. We are literally called to be grace and mercy and influence our world for good and for God. Many excuse their words by pointing to Jesus' harsh rebukes of the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the day, but they miss the point. Jesus didn't rail on the sinners of the day. He pursued them. It was the religious hypocrites who were attempting to keep sinners at bay that he blasted. This is where we have to be careful because we often will look at what is happening in our world, laws being passed, the lawlessness that is happening, and we can look at it and be disgusted. Most of us would would, uh, justify that uh, disgusted attitude as a righteous indignation. But the truth is, is we're looking at a lost world And I I was chatting with John this week just to get some names right out of his book because some of the names are really similar. And we were having this incredible conversation about the way... uh, (laughs) Is there a line? Is there a line, uh, a, a righteous line for lack of words where is there too much happening out there that there is a line in the sand that enough is enough And no, I will not do that anymore. And we had to wrestle it out. I can't find it in the Word of God. There's no line. The Bible says that we will be prosecuted, or we will be persecuted, that we will be slandered, that we will be accused, that, that false people will come and bring accusation. None of this is unique to the journey Jesus took. And he took it so that we would follow him in this. Because he came for who? The lost. He came because there is such harvest in the world. There is so many people living right outside these doors. And I'm, I mean, if we extended it all the way to Narangbar and let Pine Rivers take it from there, how many souls right there are waiting for relationship, for you to humbly serve, to love on, Be gracious with so that they can see the light and love of Jesus in your life. There are thousands upon thousands. We are one of the fastest growing regions in this nation at the moment. Did you know that? Because we have land from here to the Sunshine Coast and out. We are one of the fastest growing regions. Families are pouring into this region. And our job, like Daniel is to influence. We can't do that when we look and go, oh, look at the lifestyle. Oh, they leave their rubbish on the front. Oh, their children are so noisy. Oh, they're having parties every Friday and Saturday and every other time. Oh, they follow other religions. That's Daniel's story. Our job is to influence. What is the goal of our interactions with those who do not know Jesus? Is it judgment or is it influence? And finally, this morning, my last point, the band may come. Daniel exercised something that was the prayer of Solomon that saw him act and respond in a way to authority that was unique, even unique in the way we do it today. He operated in wisdom. Daniel's wisdom was absolutely rooted in the fear of the Lord. He knew that God was not to be messed with. He, the believer, knew that God was not to be messed with. Only a fool spits at the wind. Only a fool takes God's commands lightly. That's why Daniel and his friends always chose the path of, the word came out this morning, obedience. Even if it seemed certain to cost them their lives, they feared God more than a fiery furnace a lion's den, or anything else that their captives threw at them. And yet, at the same time, Daniel knew that not everything was worth dying for. 
Here's the shift for us today. He knew the difference between sin and the things that he found personally offensive or distasteful. There's a difference. Say to the person beside you, there's a difference. There is a difference between sin and what we personally find offensive or distasteful. In my home, I do not like dirt on my floor. Yesterday, we did the housework as a family because I've been away for a little bit, and I vacuumed and mopped four times and then three times just to get it up because when I got down, I could still see it. In my home, I like the towels to be hung up on the racks. They're pre-prepared. The towels even have little hooks on them so that you just go, done. Oh, and guess what? They dry out when you do that. In my home, I like dirty dishes to go straight to the dishwasher, not be put into the sink and pile up for me to come home at the end of the day and put them in the dishwasher. These things are not sins. They are offensive to me. They are distasteful for the way I like to live my life. But they are not sin. And Daniel knew the difference between this and what is personally offensive. Now, I've said some funny things, but I'm going to be really honest here this morning. Vaxxed or non-vaxxed, personally offensive. It's not a sin or not a sin. It's a personal offence. LNP, Labour, Greens, Family First, personally offensive. Whether you like the police, your teacher, your boss, your co-worker, personally offensive. Even if they are godless and operating in sin. Daniel knew the difference between sinning, him sinning before God and what was personally offensive and disgusting to him. There is a difference. And he never confused the two. He picked his battles wisely. Here's where we can miss the mark. We tend to confuse what we don't like with what God forbids. And so we get worked up and we go to battle with believers and non-believers over things that would have caused Daniel to shrug his shoulders. For instance, as we've seen, when King Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name, he changed it to Belteshazzar, translated Bell's Prince. As I said before, a demon. He shrugged it off. His friends did the same. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> Abednego. Those three names are their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. All of them were in direct co uh, contradiction to their Hebrew names and the meanings of it. Daniel showed the same calm sense of indifference when he was forced to study astrology and the occult for three years. If it had been an elective, he probably would have skipped the course, but he had no choice. And while God forbids us to practice astrology in the occult, the scriptures say nothing about what we can study. So rather than putting his foot down and refusing to participate in it, he took the course. And he didn't sit back in the back rolling his eyes or subtly expressing his displeasure or putting it on Facebook, his opinion and how ungodly it is. He sat in the front, studied hard and graduated the top of his class. Doing so gave him a platform and a credibility he needed once he entered the king's service to debunk Nebuchadnezzar's trust in these things. It even gave him the opportunity to introduce the God Most High, the King of Kings, to this king. 
Daniel also had the wisdom to understand that godless people live godless lives. He never forced his righteous lifestyle on others. Even as he rose to positions of power, he didn't try to impose his walk with God on those who didn't know God. And so I wonder this morning, what hills have we been setting up camp on to die on that are merely personally distasteful or offensive to us? Political hills, lifestyle choice hills, vaccination hills, policy hills. What is it? Do you know, Daniel's lifestyle has a response from the three wicked kings that is absolutely remarkable. And I want to leave with this this morning because his choice to honor with humility, humbly serve, exercise wisdom and not fight battles with godless people, but rather show mercy and grace to them have three wicked kings respond in a way that seems ludicrous. If you've not read this book before, the first king is King Nebuchadnezzar, the second king is King Belshazzar, and the third is King Darius. And the first two kings have dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar is so... I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. He is so tormented, but also he is so, he is so wanting to test the way of his gods that he has a trust that his wise men and counsel can not just interpret the dream he had, but tell him the dream he had. So he doesn't tell his wise men and counsel, here's my dream, tell me the interpretation. He brings them in and says, what did I dream? And then give me the interpretation. And then goes another step further. And if you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you're all dead. Little bit of pressure. I think today in that, we would be on Facebook real quick. I'm, I'm going to be legit. Definitely going to be chatting about now life groups. And of course, this is, this is an absolute beautiful moment for God to manifest his amazing might and power. And Daniel is the last to be brought. He wasn't even brought in with the wise men. He wasn't brought before the king. But he finds out that others in his nation, the wise men, the men dabbling in the occult, the men whose job it is to actually do the witchcraft for the king, he finds out they're going to lose their lives if they can't do this. And so he comes before the king and says, I can't do this, but my God can give me some time so that I can seek my God for it and does it. And then, which is ludicrous, he brings a word. It is not a good word for Nebuchadnezzar. The word is, acknowledge me as God, or I'm going to take you out of the kingdom and you are going to feed like a cow on the grass for seven years and be made simple of mind. That's what Daniel says to this king who was going to kill anybody who could tell him the dream and interpret it. But Daniel says it. The second king comes along and he has a dream. And the Daniel is brought because one of the wise men remembers Daniel has this gift. He comes and he says to this wicked king, the son of the first, he says, you have known God, you have seen your father's journey. You've seen what he did. You've seen God revealed in your father. And because you are prideful, and because you have not done that, your kingdom will be removed today. Today. It's the end. You will not be king anymore. You're going to die today. <laughs> and Daniel brings that word. 
And finally, King Darius, is, he's asked of the same and he brings a word. None of these kings receive a great word. But I want to, I want to read to you the responses of the kings to Daniel's life and his choices and the way he led three godless, wicked kings. The first Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's talking about himself, he is able to humble. That's, that's King Nebuchadnezzar's words. King Belshazzar, who's just found out he's going to die tonight. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple, the color of, royal, of royalty. And a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. This man just told him he's going to die. And finally, King Darius in Daniel 6.26, it says, Darius says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the Lord God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. All three kings find Daniel honorable. Two of the kings choose to follow him with their lives. The first, it's a personal. Daniel, I'm sure after Nebuchadnezzar and all that's happened in this nation, would have gone Oh, he's come to know the Lord. He has a revelation. And yet nothing changes in the nation that the son comes along and doesn't do as the father had revelation. And the, the whole nation, including the captives from Judah, are still living in a godless society. And Daniel serves and honors him so humbly that what happens is he is given a place of position a royal robe and a chain from a man he has just declared that you are done. Daniel had to wait to see God turn things together for the good for those who trust in him. Because King Darius is the final king he serves. And it's only there that Darius makes a decree. I make a decree that all my royal dominion, all people, in this nation are to fear the Lord. I wonder if we have lost that fear and so therefore do never, we, we never trust God's timing. There are men and women of the Bible who did as Daniel did and never saw the fruit. It came out in further generations. But I wonder if we would be a generation today, church, who would ask God for a new revelation of the fear of the Lord so that we learn to respond to authority in a way that is countercultural, not just in this world, not just countercultural to the way the world responds to authority, but countercultural to the way we as believers have operated for a long time.